comes await the day mother comes await the day your mind if you want to pray send all cares far comes await the day mother comes await the Come and play with you 
will scatter music with the dew and sound the morning mist. I've heard you piping on a hill, all else I've set aside. Oh, let us dance the mountain peaks, we'll skip with breezes on the creeks, and soar the valleys wide. called me to the fields now I've no place to live don't send me back rejected friend whatever I call mine must end all that I am I give I hear your call in every tree, in every flower and stream, and sweetest melody of all, a song that heaven's joy recalls. Here in my heart you see. Good morning again. It's nice to be back again in person with people and, of course, with those of you online. We can't see you, but we're glad you're here. My name is Nayaswami Hriman. I've been serving for nearly 30 years at uh, Ananda in Seattle, Greater Washington area, with my wife Padma. And today we have Nayaswami Jaya and Nayaswami Pranabha. And our topic today is meditation tools for upliftment. We decided to separate the themes. I'll talk a little bit about meditation as such, Jaya, about the attitudes 
right attitudes for meditation? And Pranava, he's not sure. <laughs> Yesterday, Padma and I met with our old friends. They're both old friends and old friends. Uh, Prem Shanti and, uh, and Om Prakash, who at different times in their lives served in Seattle for a number of years. And um, Prem Shanti gained the reputation for, it took her some years, she reported, but she came up with a phrase by which she could respond to the fertile brain of her husband and his unceasing flow of ideas. She would say to him, Om Prakash, some of your ideas are better than others. <laughs> You know, our beliefs, as Master would put it, won't save us. And we have all the ideas we need, don't we? There's not one global problem or one personal problem that there isn't a solution for. As Yogananda is well often quoted, there are no obstacles, only opportunities. What we need is something of a greater idea, the greater idea of who we are and where we've come from and where we're going to. And so in our uh, meditation teacher training in Seattle, we give out, um, we have two pieces of advice. One is the great mantra that Swami Kriyananda taught us. It's three words, I don't know. Because meditation teachers, when they're new, are probably in the greatest fear of, the, of being asked questions about esoteric matters of the chakras and this kind of thing. And the other counsel we like to give is, don't forget to meditate when you teach a class. You know, it's, uh, it's easier to talk than to meditate. And uh, to talk about meditation is easier than to, talk, to actually meditate. In the years where Swami Kriyananda would do all the classes for Spiritual Renewal Week, he would uh, always give a class on how to meditate. And uh, sort of by contrast to the talking versus meditating, his talks were so inspirational and so full of interesting tidbits of one sort or another that, that the talk was itself the motivation to meditate. But meditation's actually not that complicated. So in an hour and a half talk or longer, he maybe would get to watching the breath in the last five or 10 or 15 minutes. It just it isn't that complicated. But yet we resist. The soul loves to meditate, but the other guy, the ego that's been talked about this week, seems to have a resistance to it. You know, we can huff and puff and pranayama our way through our meditation practices, and then when we get to what um, we call in our training the third stage of meditation, which is when we drop all the activity and try to enter the state of being, sometimes that's a little short. And we're encouraged, of course, to deepen that. It's the hardest part of meditation, because the techniques themselves aren't that complicated. And yet we do resist. In my training, maybe hundreds of students over nearly 30 years, um, occasionally a student would say, in respect to a, a description of the three stages of meditation, oh, I just love sitting in the silence. But, you know, 
You have to be careful about that because what it felt to me is what they loved was being me and just being themselves. And so much of meditation that is taught out there, you know, when Swami Kriyananda, 30 years after the art and science of Raja Yoga, which is an incredible book. I mean, I taught it for decades and now Morley Venkatrao has taken over that and all of us who have taught from it. I mean, there are sentences in that book that you could meditate on. One of them, I'm not going to talk about it, but I've meditated on, so to speak, is his definition of Kundalini. He said, Kundalini is the entrenched vitality of our mortal delusion. Because you see, in my meditation teacher training and when Padma does her spiritual counseling, you know, there's a lot of books over there that have picked up the, you know, the um, mystique of Kundalini and made a big thing about it. But as Master said, every time we have a kind thought, Kundalini stirs and awakens. It's not that complicated. But as we also say in our training, you have to want to meditate. And that's an important point because it gets to the motivation. You know, when, when Master described, I, I think in Los Angeles, perhaps it was Davy made this quote, which I often do, have done myself, when he had an experience in cosmic consciousness, he came out of it saying, I cognize the center of the Empyrean as a point of intuitive perception in my own heart. And in the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, Swamiji says that the divine self resides here. The ego here, the enlightened ego here. And so our practice of meditation is to transcend all, yogas chitta vritti nirod, is to transcend all movement. And yet, as Krishna says, you cannot achieve that actionless state without taking action. You know, in our path, you know, all, all the elements of, of practice are there, but I've found it helpful in my motivation and my understanding of meditation to see the self-realization techniques, Kriya and so forth, as a form of karma yoga. Of course, we need devotion. Of course, we need right understanding and intention. Yes, of course. But, you know, in 1975, when I visited Tiruvannamali to Ramana Maharshi's ashram, which Morley and I visited again just two years ago, I was quite taken in my early stages before the autobiography. I read Paul Brunton's book, A Search in Secret India, and I was quite taken by the what is sometimes called the path of jnana yoga, what he called the, the practice of self-inquiry. But you know, Ramana Maharshi didn't give any techniques. And in my own experience, and, and Swami Kriyananda would say that Jnana Yoga is really a, a practice or a state for advanced spiritual souls. And if you ever sit there and ask, who am I? I don't know about you, but it really doesn't take you very deep or very far. And it's the energy, it's the Prana, I love that song by Swami Sri Yukteswar, let pranayam be thy religion. Pranayam will give thee salvation. Our path is a path of pranayam. 
Lahiri, or oh, I don't know that Lahiri used this term but necessarily, but I've heard it in the context of his commentaries and his diary, that another way of calling what we do could be pranakarma, because we move, A, we move the energy like an energization, but in truth, the energy moves us. You see, the chakras and the astral form, I mean, just like your liver or your spleen, what's it doing right now? You don't have any idea how your digestion is working. We're just a small fraction of what is true. Reality is infinite, and that's kind of big. And so it, it, you know, to, to reach that state where you can actually, with courage, open up to that which is so much greater than ourselves does take courage. And when Swami wrote that book, Awaken to Superconsciousness, 30 years after Art and Science, which a text we use for our meditation teacher training, he gave, it's like he took it a step further. And he called it Awaken to Superconsciousness. You know, I don't know, maybe someone here does, whether Yoganandaji coined that term. He may not have coined the term superconsciousness, but he might as well have. It's an excellent term. But what that book symbolizes or offers to those who read it is that meditation is something far greater than just our own thoughts, which is how much of meditation is taught these days. I participated many years ago with a combination of other churches and we wanted to do a peace meditation in downtown Seattle. And I had to convince them in the public meditations to have a little silence. <laughs> it's not the norm, okay? And, the, uh, and I, I love mindfulness if it brings people into greater awareness of their subconscious impulses. That's wonderful. It's, it can be very enlightening on that level but it's still just a fraction of the truth that will make us free. And we've been so blessed with that understanding, but to get there is not easy. To get there takes a lot of courage. And that resistance that we find to meditation, this is why I, it took me years to discover. I used to teach meditation in the early years, and I think, well, they already bought the class, and they're here to meditate. Why would they need a, a talk on the benefits of meditation or anything motivational, right? Well, hey, every one of us, every day, needs to remind ourselves why we want to meditate. And so the why of things is actually very, very important. And as I say, you have to want transcendence, not just to huff and puff, not just to have a lovely visualization, not just to learn more about yourself, watch those silly thoughts that you're not gonna remember two seconds afterwards. We actually want, have to want to be still and know. You know, Swami pointed out and uh, over the time, I don't know that it's in print anywhere, but, but something that was meaningful to me, given my own temperament, he said that the key to the monkey mind isn't the mind, it's the heart. And that's why we pray and why we chant, but also he gave a wonderful visualization in that awakened book. It's 
be a spiritual archaeologist. And I, I use it often because, you, you know, most of the time, I mean, nowadays everyone talks about anxiety and everyone's busy, busy, busy. The business of America is busyness. How are you doing? Are you busy? I mean, who cares? I mean, is it difficult to be busy in this culture? I don't think so. And so um, it says, be a spiritual archaeologist and dive deep. I think his reference was his experience in Capernaum in the Holy Land. He said, I dive down to the layers of culture into the living presence of Christ. And he used that experience to give this guided visualization, to drill deep down, step by step, past the outer layers of anxiety, of fears, of desires, you know, the junk, the stuff, and go down. And to do that at the beginning of your meditation, in addition to a prayer, and if you chant, in addition to a chant, because you're bringing the prana, you're bringing the energy of yourself in. Bring it in through the door of the heart. I think that's one reason, at least I'm gonna say it's one reason, that Swami would always chant, door of my heart. Because when we open the door of the heart, when, the, when we're content, when we're at rest, when we're at peace, the monkey mind says, cool, I'm with you. It just sort of settles down. That's the key. You know, the other thing is, uh, we've been talking, a few of us in Seattle, I don't know why these topics arise, but, um, you know, Swami has made statements over the years that he didn't really have a lot of inner experiences and seeing portions of the spiritual eye. Well, you know, there's a story of Ramakrishna that he, Ramakrishna, he said, I'm holding the keys of God-realization from you to his great disciple, Swami Vivekananda, so that I can squeeze a lot of work out of you, and then you get it. And I think what some of the things Master said to Swami, your life will be a life of, of, of service, and then he paused, and meditation, and other things that he said, including um, you'll find God at the end of life and death will be your final sacrifice. And Swami would sometimes say, what sacrifice is that? But anyway, um, I think very some, very, something very similar was in Swamiji's life. He had a lot of work to do. He was the most accessible, most prolific, most giving direct disciple bar none. And when we However diffident he was about relating his inner experiences, number one, that tells us we should do the same, okay? Because I, I've taught a lot of meditation classes and Raja and all those things. You know, people like to talk about those things. I, I understand that, but, but uh, they don't really mean that much, okay? They, if they had a meaning, they'd have told you. They're signposts to help us concentrate. Patanjali says any of these astral perceptions are simply there to focus on, to focus your mind, and then by degrees to absorb, and then by degrees to transcend them completely. Okay? They're just like meditation techniques, nothing special. And um, yet, when I look back over Swamiji's life, he radiated all the eight aspects of superconsciousness. It was his life dharma to serve and to give. And you know the eight aspects align more or less comfortably with the chakras. So the low coming up from the bottom piece emanating through the Muladhara chakra. Well, Swami would sometimes say, peace is my bottom line. 
meaning he would not do or say or feel anything that would disturb his inner peace. Wisdom. Huh. I mean, look at all the books he wrote, thousands of lectures, and the, the books that I, and I think many of us, treasure the greatest, his, his magnum opus of the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, his autobiography, The New Path, Promise of Immortality. Wisdom, he, he had wisdom for breakfast, as he might have said. Vitality, energy, my Lord, he was at death's door more than the cat, more than nine times. He had tremendous energy. He said, I, I feel like I'm sitting on a volcano. Acceptance, love, devotion. You know, in the early years, his, his devotion was a little bit held in. Not a lot, but a little bit. But as the years went on, it was unrestrained. Calmness, my goodness, under intense persecution, intense all sorts of things, he radiated goodwill and connection, deep calmness. And at the end of his life, in the final years, he was like an overflowing chalice of bliss. That leaves us the last two, which are generally considered internal, light and sound. Ever listen to his voice? If that wasn't the voice of Om, his music, 400 pieces of music, his chants, even his photos radiate light through the eyes especially. He radiated. He, he was a crystal clear prism, a crystal of superconsciousness. And his dharma was to radiate that. And to say that he didn't experience it is foolishness. He was it. He didn't have to emphasize it. He didn't have to pursue it. He was it. You know, ideas, we have plenty of ideas. In my own relation with him, um, ideas were sort of, you know, I, for some reason I often found myself driving his car. In the early years he would drive the car and I'd sit there, but um, one time when he was driving he was playing this beautiful album, which I love and I recommend for those of you who want to learn the harmonium, Kriyananda chants Yogananda. And on that album is, Will That Day Come to Me? And on the album itself, he barely can continue. He went so deep into it. So we're listening to this album, and what did I say at the end of the album? I came up with this deep thought. I said, Swamiji, you forgot the line, a thousand Vedas do declare. <laughs> he just looked at me and just didn't say a word. <laughs> then one time I asked him, well, you know, if you need a guru to become realized, how did the first guru ever get realized? <laughs> You should have seen the look. <laughs> I, uh, you know, when I read the autobiography the first time, I didn't really think consciously about this, but I just had this feeling that Yogananda was Jesus Christ. It was an unexamined feeling. And so one time we were together and I asked Swami, I mean, he said other things years later, but long ago, well, you know, um, Master had visions of Jesus Christ, right? So he, I'm thinking to myself about what I had felt when I first read the autobiography years before that. So he couldn't have been Jesus Christ, right? He said, oh, heavens, no. You can call out from the ether. In infinity, past, present, and future exist simultaneously. So no, that, that's by no means definitive. 
One time he was writing, I think it was his Revelations of Christ, because he, he commonly would send out drafts of his chapters on books to a group of us. And one time he did a, a reading on, it's a beautiful story, it's very short in St. John's Gospel, chapter nine. It's the story of the blind man along the road and, you know, oh master, why, did, why is this man born blind because of his parents or whatever? And it was an opportunity, one of several that Jesus had to remark on, reject, or accept reincarnation, which he's managed once again to sidestep. So we were emailing back and forth on that chapter, and I don't recall exactly, but I, I took exception to something, or at least had a different point of view to whatever Swami had written. And we went back and forth and ended up in a stalemate. So on his next visit to Seattle, we're sitting there in the car, and this time I'm driving and he's sitting, and uh, so, because it was unresolved, I knew I needed to do something. <laughs> so I said, well, I guess I was kind of a pill, huh, sir? And he said, yes, you were kind of a pill. <laughs> and so, I, okay. And, you know, it really doesn't matter because Master left a lot of things unsaid. You know, he said the human body was, he confirmed the Genesis in saying that the human body was uh, caused by the direct um, action of, of God but he'd never explained why. And Jesus also, when these great avatars come, and, and Swami too, he, he would give us the techniques. He didn't really say a whole lot about it. Nowadays we say a lot, you know, and people seem to need that and it's perfectly fine. I guess it's our job to explore these things. But nonetheless, when you get right down to, we have to understand that our mind asks these questions and it's perfectly fine. But don't stop there, that's really my point. You know, Hong Saw gives to us the point of concentration at the spiritual eye like Yandev talked about. You know, there's some very interesting aspects about how the brain works. Again, things are being discovered. I think energization someday will be subjected to scientific studies and will be proven to be the exercise of the future, as in fact, Master said it would be. No need for dumbbells, you know. Um, and so there's, there is a lot yet to be done on the path. And when, you know, Swamiji uh, was told that his life's work to rec lecture and, and, and write, and he said to Master, well, haven't you written everything? Well, Master was shocked that he would even say such a thing. So we do have a great work to do in the exploration of, of the science of meditation. But in that exploration, sometimes I fear we're gonna forget to meditate because it's so much more interesting to talk about it. Here I am talking about it. <laughs> but with Hong Sa and Om, a slow starter, a big finisher, Swamiji would say, I find that was been true of all the techniques. It's all about tuning into energy, first controlling it, and then realizing that we don't control it, and then letting it go. The process is not complicated but you have to actually want it. You have to actually want to transcend your own thoughts, your own fears and desires, your own little personality. And over the years, you begin to realize how superficial and useless are our opinions. 
my friend Naya Swami Jamuna once long ago, many, many decades ago, I remember her saying that, you're not really on the spiritual path till you decide your opinions are not worth that much. And I would add also to that the thoughts. So let's go deep in the inner space of God-realization. Thank you. Thank you, Riman. That was lovely. And I want to thank all of you for being here today to give us all an opportunity to get together after three years of not getting together, to be able to come together in this way for Spiritual Renewal Week. So it's my pleasure to be with you today, to be able to share with you as Riman uh, introduce. My name is Nayaswami Jaya. And I also want to welcome all of you who are tuning in online. Today, as Riman introduced, I'd like to share a few thoughts about attitudes of meditation, things perhaps an approach. What is attitude really? It's, it's, it's a navig uh, navigation term, the way that we approach something, the attitude of the sails. How do we approach our meditation? And maybe one or two points that might be helpful to us. But I want to start with a poem. Now, I did not write this poem. <laughs> uh, Narayan shared a poem with us earlier this week. But this is a very famous poem, actually. It was by Sir Edwin Arnold. And I chose this poem because I think it explains the theme of what we are doing this week with this, uh, this SRW. And raise your consciousness. We change the world, uplift ourselves, uplift the world, change ourselves, and change the world. And I think this poem, which I'm just, of course, going to read a very short uh, extract from that poem, explains this. And this was a poem that was written 1879. Had a great influence. It's about the life of the Buddha. Gautama Buddha. And I chose it to read this is because this was something that Swami would reference often. I didn't hear him reference it so much later in his life, but in his early years, he would reference this as an example of this theme that we're speaking about today, the importance, the impact that any one person can have upon the world. And so this part that I've chosen is the part where the Buddha, Gautama, reaches enlightenment. Yea, and so holy was the influence of that high dawn, which came with victory, that far and near, in homes of men, there spread an unknown peace. The slayer hid his knife, the robber laid his plunder back, the shroff counted full tale of coins, all evil hearts grew gentle, kind hearts gentler, as the balm of that divinest daybreak lightened earth. Kings as fierce war, at fierce war called truce, the sick men leaped, laughing from beds of pain. The dying smiled as though they knew that happy morn was sprung, that fountains farther than the utmost east and o'er the heart of sad Yastara, yes, sitting forlorn 
at Prince Siddhartha's bed came sudden bliss, as if love should not fail, nor such vast sorrow miss to end in joy. So glad the world was, though it wist not why, the spirit of our Lord lay potent upon man and bird and beast, even while he mused under that Bodhi tree, glorified with the conquest gained for all, enlightened by a light greater than days. Glorified with conquest gained for all. One man's enlightenment had the effect upon the whole world. This is a tradition. One person attaining that liberation, it's said that in the heavens themselves, the angels rejoice at that. And from that enlightenment, the Buddha went forth and he changed the world. He changed history in his time and even to this day. And this poem of Sir Edwin Arnold was actually the poem that popularized Buddhism in the West as just as that poem, Song Celestial of the Bhagavad Gita did the same for the Bhagavad Gita in the West in the 19th century. And the impact of those lives have gone out. Christ, the Buddha, Shankara, the great masters of our path. We don't know the impact. We can't see it outwardly, but that very fact of their upliftment changed history and it changed thousands upon millions and tens of millions of people. And they changed each one of us, I think, as well. The fact that our master came, that Swami as his disciple came and was able to share these teachings had that impact upon us. Now, when the Buddha attained enlightenment, he then went out and began to share. You see, he didn't keep it for himself. He shared that impact out with the world at large. And an interesting story that also Swami would share oftentimes when he would be talking about this very passage. He was here at the time of his enlightenment. He arose maybe, and he realized he would go out and share these teachings of the Dharma. And before he had sat, to find enlightenment under that tree. He had vowed not to move until he did. He had been an ascetic some years before, and he had, a, you know, with other groups, doing very heavy austerities. But he realized that wasn't the path. He didn't feel that that was going to bring success to him. So he abandoned those traditions, and he tried to find some middle ground. And he was considered an apostate, you might say, somebody who had for, uh, fallen from the path by his fellow devotees because he was no longer doing those strict austerities. And so when he rose, he went to share the good news of what he had discovered. And the first people he came to were, the, were a group of monks who had been his fellow monks. And their first impulse was to say, let us flee. The fallen one is coming. Let us not have anything to do with him. And just as they were about to flee, they looked at the Buddha, who he was now, Siddhartha before, but now he was the Buddha. They looked and they saw something in him. They looked and they saw, they could not explain what it was, but it was something that made them pause. And they went to him. And Swami said, that was the Buddha's first sermon. 
not the words, but the projection of his vibration. That's what it was. He shared his vibration and they were able to receive it. And this is what we feel. And this is what changes people because we feel that vibration. And this is what changed, I suspect, most of us as well. Not the teachings, they come second. It's the vibration first. I remember, I say this story because I remember my first meeting with Swami Kriyananda. This was in University Avenue in Berkeley, California on a cold fall night. I was waiting for him outside of a storefront where he was about to give a class, me and a few other people. And it was dark. And I sometimes have told this story in a humorous vein, but I'm not, because it's not humorous, it's important. But it is, it, is, it has an uh, unusual side to it too. But when he came around the corner and he came and I saw him for the first time, I thought, that must be Swami Kriyananda. And I had an instant reaction to him. And it wasn't an enlightened you know, vision or anything of that nature. But I smiled and I said, I like this man. I just looked at him and I say, I like this man because I felt something. Now, in those days, I couldn't at that age of 22 explain what it was that I felt. But looking back, what was it that I felt? His vibration. And from there, my life changed. He changed my life through that vibration. And this is what all of us perhaps have been touched in one way or another. Now, that's a prelude to a story that I want to say, share. The, some years ago, it was a, 2011, and uh, Dharmadasji and Nirmala will remember this story because they were there with one or two others. Swami had come out of the hospital, and I at that time was living with uh, uh, the devotees in Delhi, no, Gurgaon, the NCR. I was living at, in Gurgaon, 2011, and with Diana. And Diana and I, I don't remember the reason, but we had come to Pune. Uh, one, to see Swami, but also probably to do a certain amount of business. And we had come, and Dhyana and I, Swami was in the hospital. So we didn't really have a chance to see him. It was, he was one of the many ailments that, and, and infirmities that he was overcoming. But this was a very serious one. So we didn't have a chance to see him. But we were about to leave and go back to an NCR. And... Well, Swamiji he granted us his darshan to give us a blessing before we went back. And he was staying at that time in a hotel in Pune. And uh, Dharmadas and Nirmala were with him. A few, one or two others came with us. And we went to a private lobby and that. And he came, you know, he was, you could see he was very weak. But uh, I could perceive and I feel this was true, that he was in an ecstatic state. It was, he was not in a normal state. We could see he was infirm, but his voice, his presence, his whole demeanor, he was in a different place. And he came out very graciously, and he began to reminisce. 
And he began to think about the, you know, tell this story, a little bit this story back. And he was just going in the, into the past about Master, saying different things. And he then, we were, we, he knew we were, Diana and I were there to come and he, we were leaving, we were gonna go. And he said something somewhat directed to Diana and me, but I think directed to all of us there who were there. He said this, remember, Remember, it's not enough to give the teachings. You must give people bliss. It's not enough to give the teachings. You must give people bliss. And that had a very big impact on me because I'm fussy and meticulous, and I want to get everything right, and I want to get, you know, oh, no, we should say it this way. Now, as a teacher, you know, you want to do a, do a good job, and a little bit intellectual, the teachings are on that level. But I took that very personally. It's not enough to give the teachings. You must give people, and he stressed it, give people bliss. Now, what is bliss? It's vibrations. You must, it is vibrations which change. It is vibrations which change St. Paul on the road to Damascus. He had that vision, I'm sure, that had something to do with it. But it was that vibration that you come into the presence of a great soul and people change all of a sudden. And it's not through the mind. And so this, you could say, was the lesson that I felt. You must give bliss. Now, what might that have to do with attitudes of meditation? Well, you must give bliss, but that's not when you're standing on a podium. You hope you might be able to do some of that too, but it's in our life, in what we do, and if we're trying to be effective, if we're trying to reach other people, that is our duty. Our duty as devotees, as disciples, is to give bliss, and it's the giving you see, to give. And what is, we, we use the term, you could say, joy, we give joy. It's to give joy, but it's more exalted than that, to give that bliss. And that's what changes others. But in the process of giving, who is changed also? We are changed. And so when we meditate, we have to come back to some essentials. We give joy. We bring joy to our meditation. We meditate in bliss. Now that's, we say, I wish I had that, but it's cultivatable. We can cultivate it. And I've often asked myself over the years, what is it? I mean, how do you give bliss? How do, you, or let's use the word here, joy, because it's in the day-to-day -day activities. Perhaps we relate a little better to that. How do you give joy to other people? Well, obviously, you being joyful yourself is certainly one way to help that, to stimulate that. But to be able to actually, what can any one person do to really change another person or to help that person? And I think it really comes down to love. We have to love. Now, Swami called love bliss in motion. It really comes down to that. And that's something, I, when I meet somebody, I don't know what I can give them joy, 
but I can try my darndest to love them, to love the God that is within them, to love the bliss that is within them, to love that divine potential. And there again, when we come back to meditation, this is what we have to bring to our meditation. We have to bring those qualities that we're seeking into the very act of what we're doing when we meditate. Now, there's a second story that, uh, I, I very much liked what Remont said, you have to want to meditate. That's, you have to want, that's good. I and it's because it's so important, you can't just go to meditate, well, I, how, how are you doing today? Well, I, I knocked off my Kriyas, you know, and I got them done, and I finished that meditation, and now let's, I'm, 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 I'm good to go. <laughs> I've had that attitude, you know, I, I knocked them off and I got it out of the way as if it was some, you know, like brushing my teeth, you know, and, it, uh, and we can't have that approach. We have to have that want to actually do what it is we're doing. But I'm going to take it a little bit further than wanting to meditate. Something Swamiji had a satsang and I, can't remember the exact circumstances of that satsang, but he was asked a question about so many people, Swamiji, they come, somebody had departed, you might say, gone in another direction. And he said, so many people come and go, Swamiji, why, what does it take? You know, and I think maybe the person was thinking in their own sense, am I gonna be able to last on this, you know, this journey? And he says, What's it, what does it take to stick to the path and go, you know, continue? And Swamiji, he mentioned a few other things. You have to have, you know, you have to have your sadhana right. You know, you have to put the energy here and do that. And a few things, he just more of on the, uh, I don't want to say mundane, but more on the, you might expect him to say sort of things. And then he gave one fine, but he said one fine, he says, but to really last and to be successful, you need to make your spiritual life a matter of life and death. A matter of life and death. So you have to want to meditate, but when you're in real danger, something happens to you. It focuses the mind. And... We have to, your urge, that sense of urgency, which a few others have mentioned this week, needs to be there. A sense, and that needs to not just be there, but needs to be cultivated, actually. I think we cultivate that sense of urgency. Different ways, perhaps remembering that feeling of enthusiasm when we came on the spiritual path, that sense of, uh, unfortunately, uh, Death is coming, you know, you don't want to wait till the last moment. I got, I got so much time. Whatever it might be, you can cultivate that urgency. And I, in that vein, I was, I was, I liked it. Nirmala said something, and I can't remember exactly what she said about music, but I, I came across this quote as I was thinking about urgency, which uh, uh, Nirmala, you inspired me to repeat here. He, Swami said, music is effective not only in quieting the mind, but also in filling one with a devotional hunger to go deep in meditation, setting all other thoughts resolutely aside. Then he says, without that heartfelt yearning, 
deep meditation just isn't possible. In other words, heartfelt yearning, the necessity to bring to our meditation as an attitude, the sense of life and death. Remember how we've just was mentioned this week when Swami first met Master. He uh, he said he he was desperate, and I remember Swami many times have just has retold that story where he would he would almost be in tears when he would sit and he was mentally he was saying to Master. You must accept me. You must, you must accept me when he asked to be his disciple and Master didn't answer immediately. He was desperate. And I think to bring that fervor of desire to the meditation temple when we meditate is to maintain that, to, con to cultivate it. And you could say that fervor, that desire, is the essence also of devotion. To want, to really want something, to want God, to want to be able to have devotion even. Like Master said, if you don't, or Swami would say, if you don't have devotion, pray for devotion. To have that and bring that to our meditation seat. And so it's very, what Sriman said is absolutely true. We have to want to do something. And if you want something, the lover in the love letter, you know, they're, they're, you're, you're going to do it. You're going to scale mountains if necessary to get there. And this, we need to bring that to the table, to our meditation room. And at this would, and if you do, you find that in the very loving, in the very devotional fervor, we gain back that inspiration. We gain back those feelings of devotion come back to it. So it's in the giving that we gain in everything we do. Joy, bliss, peace, calmness, all of these come when we present that first. And so sit in that in that attitude. And finally, one last point I'd like to share is that over the years, when I first uh, began trying to seriously follow up on, on practice what one might preach, you might say, uh, I, used to, I used to pray, come to me, Lord, come to me, Lord, come to me, and in that vein, something along those, Divine Mother, come, come and very intensely, and it, it was helpful. It was helpful, but at a certain point, I don't know, I, I changed. I began to change my prayers a little bit from that, because if I, when I, that intensity of come, Master, come, I want you, I felt was an affirmation that I didn't have him. I was pushing him away, actually, by praying in that way, come, you're not with me. You're not with me, you're somewhere else. And I think that's a mistake for me. I don't know if it's a mistake for others. It, it was helpful for a while, but eventually I realized Master's with me already. And he even says that, he says, don't you realize it's just a matter, he's there. It's like that story of St. Anthony in the desert where you know the devil's tempting him and crashing down. 
and he, and he calls to Christ to help save him and come, and Christ does come and drives the devils away and so on. And Anthony says, so where were you, Lord? <laughs> where were you in these trials that I had? And if you listen, you know, you listen to the recording masters. Anthony, I was always with you. <laughs> and that's how it is. God is with, Master's with us right now. And so I've taken that prayer. You might say it's various ones, one of which is what Master said, that prayer, reveal thyself. He's only hiding. Divine Mother's hiding. I'm hiding. Maybe I'm hiding. I'm on the wrong side of the veil. I want to, you know, I want to part that veil. Yeah, maybe God isn't. It's me who's hiding. But reveal thyself, Master. Divine Mother, come out of the darkness. Let me see you. Let me know you. Let me be with you. And this, I think, this doing that God is with me already, and then in my daily activities, I know it's said, we must, God is the doer. I know that logically, I mean, philosophically, but it sure seems that I'm doing a lot. It just doesn't fit with me to, to say God is the doer, God is the doer. It seems like an affectation, actually, if I say that. But God's my companion. God is with me. And we're doing it together. Now, I know I'm really not doing anything, and I'm the silent partner here, and he's silent, but I'm the junior partner, really. <laughs> but we're doing it together. God, let's do this together. Help me. You're right there. You're with me at all times. And it's my prayer that... You know, someday we transition. I can transition to understanding that I'm not doing anything. But that, that time will come. That time will come. And so take those. There's three, three points. And uh, see if you can put them into action, make them practical, and actually practice. And take what Riemann said. We have to want God. Make that a, make that a mantra. I want you, I want you, I want you. And you're right there. Reveal thyself, reveal thyself. God bless. So I'd like to ask you to stand and we'll do the full yogic breath that uh, Gyandev did with us on Tuesday. So I won't give you much instruction other than be in the center of the experience and let that breath and that prana and that presence flow through you. So as you exhale, let the body fold over. As you inhale, let the hands come close to the aura of your body, coming up with the breath, offering it up. Feel that expansion opening. Exhale, going at your own pace. Bending the knees if you need to. Again, be in the experience rather than doing the exercise. And after your next inhalation, stretching up, let your arms come down. Go ahead and be seated again.
So today is July 1st, and in a few days' time, on July 4th, this country celebrates its independence on July 4th. And it's also a Nanda celebration of its anniversary of being founded in 1969. So there's an aura of energy that's here. And I came across a quote from Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the founders of this country, with a very interesting and insightful quote. He said, there are three things that are extremely hard. Steel, a diamond, and knowing oneself. And he had that aura around him. Parvati and I just recently watched Ken Burns' documentary on Benjamin Franklin. And I think it's his most recent documentary, but very insightful. But I was thinking about this, why it's hard. For most people, it's because they're, from, they're looking from the outside looking in. Now, fortunately for all of us, as devotees, as meditators, we're actually looking at it more from the inside out. We're, as Master said, we're coming from the perspective center everywhere, circumference nowhere. And when we're able to live more in that experience, we start to see things magnetize and opening up to us with greater possibilities than our conscious mind may not necessarily have thought of or approached in any way. And for us, that's important to know. You know, I was reading the uh, Swamiji's book on the Yoga Sutras, Demystifying Patanjali. And um, one of these great souls, uh, I think it was Raymond, mentioned the second sutra of the Yoga Sutras, which is Yoga Chitti Vritti Nirod. Yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of feeling. And Swamiji, in his commentary, brings up an interesting point. He said, I've always been puzzled whether to refer to this as an achievement or an attainment. I mean, pause for a little bit and just think about that. Achievement, attainment. And as both Jaya and Riemann were saying, our spiritual journey demands our energy, our willingness with intention moving forward in application. But he said, there's more than just our effort that will allow us to realize the experience of enlightenment. And it, he said, it really is not so much achieving that, but through our efforts, we're creating a magnetic flow that the true bliss of self-realization is attained. Remember in that wonderful quote of Master about self-realization, at the end he says, to increase our knowing, that is the focus. It's not about that it's separate from us. It is our experience. But we know full well it's covered up to lesser or greater degrees for each one of us. And I was thinking about this in the way that we can 
casually default in understanding how we relate to the techniques, to our sadhana, our spiritual practices. Uh, an example that comes up frequently and is an interesting one where people will make the comment, I really like to do the yoga asanas, the yoga postures, to prepare for meditation. But think about that for a moment. Indeed, it does prepare us for meditation. But aren't we, in a sense, robbing ourselves if we just hold to that perspective? Where are we when we're doing yoga postures? Thinking about something else that's coming down the line? That can readily be what happens for people. But remember the term that Swami used to describe the yoga postures. Yoga postures for higher awareness. We want to be in the fullness of each moment of everything we're involved in as an experience of touching God. Or perhaps, more truly, the experience of God touching us. That we want to include in all that we do in our spiritual practices, the essence of the divine. Because as we've just heard, the essence of the divine is always with us. It is our lacking of that realization that clouds what that experience is for us. But it is always there. And I remember years ago, this is before I actually moved to Ananda village, I had visited here a number of times and taken Kriya initiation and I took my yoga teacher training program and I was back in Canada. By the way, Canada today, July 1st, is celebrating its Independence Day. So remember Canada in your prayers as well. <laughs> Not that I have anything to do with Canada. Um, but being back there, I initiated starting a, a Nanda meditation group. And I was really taken by the yoga postures, uh, more in the sense I'd been doing them even before coming to Ananda. But Swamiji's approach of that higher awareness uh, really, really felt much more aligned with what I was seeking through them. And as most of you, if not all of you, know that Swamiji has encouraged the mental repetition of affirmations for each of the asanas, the yoga postures. And philosophically, as Jaya would say, I appreciated them, but they are from the outside looking in. And, you know, when you're doing something like Parastasana, the jackknife pose, which is the standing forward bend, you're folding the body over. In those early years, when my body wasn't really, really cooperating a whole lot, it felt like an imposition of adding a, an affirmation. I was struggling to feel the experience of that stretch and what that was. And that affirmation felt like just an addition to that. But one point, 
after doing this day after day after day of tuning in that way, I had this deeper experience where I realized that the affirmation with each pose wasn't a mental thought, really. It was the mental or the consciousness that was coming from that part of me that coincided with the physical experience. So I was on the inside, appreciating the outside experience. And that's really important for all of us, because we don't want to just sit in our meditation practice thinking, I'll do this and I will find God. As, as Master said about one of the disciples at Mount Washington, that's a mercenary approach. I'll give you this God, but you have to give me that, this in return. But of course, God is already giving that to us. That isn't missing. It's our part that isn't realizing that, isn't feeling that experience as much. And that's why, as Jaya was re referencing, the heart is very important in everything. Not only our spiritual practices, but every moment and everything. If we can feel that touch inside, more importantly, even when we don't feel that touch inside, if we can feel that in the self-offering, we have attained that experience. No matter we can't recognize the outcome. I mean, in a sense, our conscious mind is really not that well-suited to determine what's happening for us. Interesting, isn't it? And so sometimes we're clouded in, in what we can cognize. I mean, take Sister Gyanamata, Yogananda's foremost woman disciple. She passed away after many years of suffering great physical pain and discomfort. But, and Master, in his memorial service for Sister, Sister Gyanamata, mentions that that Sister asked him a few days, or just before she left her body, for Nirbhikalpa Samadhi. It's probably something we'd all like to ask at that point. And what his response was? But Sister, you've gone past that point. She was fully liberated, is what he said. But her conscious awareness of that had a veil had this, in a sense, it was probably a grace from God that didn't allow her to know that was the fullness of her experience. But in reality, she knew her fullness in being with God, being with Master completely. So the self-offering is the way for all of us in our personal everything, our spiritual practices, our day-to-day -day encounters with the world around us, the way that we serve, the way that we act, the way that we think, can be imbued always with this divine remembrance. And then further in that, divine self-offering. You know, as it's hard being the last speaker after all these other speakers because 
I feel like what I get to do is retell a lot of the things. So bear with me that if these are repetitions. But when we're really in that self-offering, we can feel that everything is aligned, whether it's the chakras, our attitudes, the simple thoughts that we carry. It's not that we're perfected necessarily in those things, but we're aligned. We're moving the energy in, in the appropriate way. We're coming to that attainment. You know, in the book that was referred to, uh, Awaken to Superconsciousness, that Riemann referred to and others earlier referred to, Swamiji takes a very interesting approach that uh, was very thrilling to tune into in his understanding of tuning into the yamas and the niyamas of the eight-limb path of Ashtanga Yoga that's presented in the Yoga Sutras. And he emphasizes this experience of listening. And he goes through each of the five yamas and each of the five niyamas with this awareness of listening. And what that listening really means is more than just what's what's going on, which is an important part of it, but really the emphasis was there with being absorbed. As much as we can, each one of us, where we're at, we can feel more of that absorption in these experiences. Because that's really, as Riemann referred to, the three uh, parts of the meditation practice. We have the relaxation, the interiorization, which is the technique part, and then we have expansion. That expansion is that absorption, and that's that listening that we're able to feel in every endeavor, in every moment, in outward activity, in inward stillness. All of it is enriched because we're remembering in that self-offering to be absorbed in this experience that's coming through us. And that experience is the grace of God. The more that we can be in that interior experience, the more we magnetize that grace coming to us. And it comes to the point where Swamiji said at the end of his life, there was no separate separation between himself and master. That, that absorption is the entirety of his experience. When we are in that experience, even in the beginning of that experience, we have a tremendous gift to the world around us, as we've been talking about. Uplift ourselves, uplift the world that presence of that divine touch in ourselves is a tremendous magnetism for the world around us. Again, whether people tune into it, whether they can appreciate it or not, it has its way. You know, there is, as we heard, research a lot more on meditation, what it does for us, what it does with the brain. 
And it's quite amazing. I don't have a slide showing uh, the helmets on anyone uh, today, as Dharmadas used the other day. But, but they found that clearly what happens with meditation is if we have a sense of um, an open attitude, that we have deep breathing, we have relaxation, and we have meditation, then the brain changes and it works for us. And the corollary to that is what starts to happen is that as we tune into the love of God, as Jaya referred to, tuning into devotion, then that's the nature of who we are. And that nature of who we are connects to other people. So that they found if you're tuning in that way with that essence of love of God, and you express that through your smile, as Master said, smile not only with your lips, your mouth, but smile with the sparkle of your eyes that is imbued from the smile of your heart deep in God. When we smile that way, it creates uh, a synchronicity, much as Dharmadas was talking about the mother and child, the mother and baby. It creates a connection that is as powerful for the other person. Now, some people, again, may not have that experience completely that they can recognize, but their soul does. Their soul call is nurtured by that connection. That memory, that shmiti, starts to be enlivened in the world around us. We can change the world by changing ourselves. It is the promise of the divine, of the masters, and the promise that we can fulfill in this lifetime. I'd like to end my portion of this talk with a reading of Swami's description of the Ananda logo, the joy symbol. And the tech team is going to show up on the screen for those that aren't that familiar with the symbol. So this is taken down uh, at the village here in front of the lotus, uh, the joy symbol fountain. So tune into the image, feel it clear. This is a, an image that came to Swamiji in meditation many, many years ago. And he felt it reflected really what Ananda was all about. But then he actually wrote in words, even more in a focused way. So as well as hear them, listen to them with your heart and soul. The mountain peak at the bottom symbolizes the soul's aspiration toward God. The graceful upward curve of the slopes suggests joyous rather than merely arduous ascension. The sweep upward and outward from the mountaintop, ending in the figure of a bird, symbolizes the bird of paradise. The human soul soaring upward and outward in joyous circles to embrace all beings in its quest for enlightenment. The bird itself finally is also like an arrow. It's shaped the complement of the mountain below. Thus, every upward, upward aspiration of the soul is met by a corresponding descent of divine grace. The devotee should make a conscious effort to bring down into his daily life 
the peace and joy he attains in meditation. The descending bird symbolizes finally the avatar who after finding God descends again to help other aspiring souls. As Paramahansa Yogananda once said, Lord, give me thyself that I may give thee to all. That is the highest prayer. Blessings. I'd like to invite now Swami Jyotish and Swami Devi to share some uh, closing remarks with all of us. I very much want to thank you and by extension thank all of the people who shared this week. It's been a really wonderful week of inspiration. Thank you. You know, the, obviously, we all know the theme of the week is uplift yourself, uplift the world. But I would like to offer this. I imagine you feel more uplifted now than when you arrived, at least. At least I, I, I certainly hope that's true, and from the response, I think it's true. But I want to put a little bit of a change to those words. Uplift yourself, uplift and uplift your world. So if you can keep your consciousness uplifted, you will change your world, and that's what's going to change the greater world. If you leave here, you know, you've been, it's like a magnet. You've been in a great magnetic force for a while. But I don't know if you've ever tried to magnetize a little paper clip or anything like that. Right after you've tried to magnetize it, you can probably pick up another paper clip with it. You leave it for a week, and maybe you can pick up a tiny filing and a month later, you can't pick up anything with it. So how do you stay magnetized? How do you keep your upliftment going? Well, we've tried to give you a whole tool belt, uh, f a whole shed full of tools this week. You know, there have been attitudes, and there's been techniques and descriptions of the inner spine, and. Today, tonight, we will have, for most of you, Kriya initiations. All of these things, and of course, yesterday, the talking about attunement with the Guru, all of these things are tools, but tools don't do the work by themselves. I don't know if you've ever had a rake spontaneously get out and start cleaning the yard hasn't happened to me. The tools are there. The upliftment is there. But the use of them, as Jaya put so beautifully and Tremont, you have to want God. You have to want desperately the upliftment of consciousness. And if that happens, then you will indeed use these tools. 
I would like to suggest, because your consciousness is in an uplifted state, when you're uplifted, your world is changed. But I would like to suggest that while you're uplifted, before you leave this afternoon, tomorrow, sometime before you leave, and that includes the people who reside here, we don't get a free pass. Before we leave this uplifted consciousness, that we figure out a game plan. How are we going to hold on to this magnetism? For each one of us, it's going to be somewhat different. But really, try to spend a little bit of time figuring out how you're going to hold on to uplifted consciousness and apply that in your life. Because without it, even if you try, the inspiration of this week will fade, having been through 50 of them before. I can say that with confidence. <laughs> but with your continued application of inspiration and tools and techniques and attitudes and all of the things that were, you know, we've had these wonderful classes and and obviously we're all touched and uplifted by them. But everything else around here is part of the whole process. The environment. Think about how you're going to uplift your environment. How are you going to make it beautiful? How are you going to tame the wild animals that inhabit your world? Your food. You've had wonderful food all week. How's your food going to help uplift? Uh, Pranabha used the title, Yoga Postures for Higher Awareness. Everything should be something for higher awareness. Food for higher awareness. Landscape for higher awareness. Music for higher awareness. Meditation for higher awareness. Everything. So, kind of um, my suggestion is go through your life as it is now and think about the various elements of it and then think about how you can change and uplift each of those various elements to help uplift your consciousness. And if you do that, you will in fact hold on to this magnetism. Another thing, these classes, wonderful events, are going to be online. You can repeat because you've been magnetized here. It's easier to listen again and get re-magnetized. So that's another tool. But go through your life while you're inspired and figure out a game plan for how you're going to hold on to that. And if you do that, then the force that goes out from this week can truly, truly have a really effective vibration and magnetism and light to uplift the world. I'll just close now uh, with a few thoughts. We won't have a meditation after class today because they have to prepare the temple for Kriya. But 
I want to also thank the teachers today and for each day, not only for your classes. The classes were wonderful. But I want to thank you all for who you have become. And it is an honor to walk the path with such souls as all of you. Brahmacharya Ditya, in his talk on discipleship, said, the day you take discipleship is the most important day in your life. Well, this week there have been discipleship initiations, pilgrim vow initiations. Tonight there will be a Kriya, three Kriya Yoga initiations. And put them all together and we can see this can be a turning point. And you, on Saturday, traditionally, it's a day of celebration. We've had the focus, the dedication, the self-offering. And then Saturday in the morning tomorrow, we'll have people just sharing how they uplift their lives in an informal way. Then we'll have a glorious Indian banquet. Don't miss it. Not just the food, but the decorations and the environment and the beautiful Indian costumes. And then in the evening, we'll have, for the first time, I think it's probably in about 10 years, that we'll have excerpts from Swamiji's great play, The Peace Treaty. Couldn't be more relevant. This will be in the amphitheater outside. But Jyotish gave you the suggestion of writing down what you're going to be doing. I want to give you a visualization. I find this very helpful in my life when I'm trying to make a change or break new spiritual territory, have an image in my mind. Maybe it's a certain picture of master or something like that. And I want to offer you the image. It's well known of Krishna driving Arjuna's chariot with the five white horses. Krishna is the, the Lord in the form of Krishna driving the chariot. Swamiji in the explanation of the Gita called Arjuna devotee every man. That means he's you and me. And the Lord is driving our chariot. Keep that image in your mind. He's, as Jaya was saying, he's not far away. He's driving your chariot between the forces of materialistic consciousness and soul aspiration. That's the whole of the spiritual path, that one image. And what's Swami and Master explain, at the crest of Arjuna's chariot is a flag. And what is that flag? It's often said that it's Hanuman, but it's the monkey mind. It means that the spine is the flagpole conquering the monkey mind. Use that as your takeaway image. Lord is driving your chariot, helping you. You will be victorious because he is driving the chariot. And he will make all the adjustments and the strategy that you need. Have faith in the Lord, know he's with you, 
and think of the, your spine as that flagstaff, and on the top is the soul victorious over the monkey mind. Let's all collectively, individually, leave with that image. And when you get discouraged, when you forget the words and everything, the philosophy and everything that was shared, hold on to that image and carry it with you through life. And that victory on the field of Kurukshetra, that victory in our own souls, is a victory for the whole world. So thank you. You don't know what a pleasure it's been to share with all of you. I don't think I've ever shared with such a focused, attentive group of people. You brought a lot. And our prayer for you is that you take away a lot, a lot of God. And let's go forth with the days that we have ahead of Spiritual Renewal Week, and let's leave. Because we will leave too, even though we live here. We'll leave this magnificent energy vortex. Let's leave with the sense, in this lifetime, as Master said, the time for knowing God has come. We can do it through the grace of God.